As you know, uh, what we have fundamentally been doing uh, at this stage of the uh, Institute is basically we have broken the Bible down into 17 compartments. And this is, without a doubt, the easiest way to learn your Bible. Now, we meet, and I say this every week or every month, we meet once a month. I expect you, to, by the time we get back month to month, that you have everything laid out, nailed down of what we just talked about. Get it, however you got to get it, into your Bible to make it work for you. That is what this whole thing is about. If you don't do that, then we're wasting our time here. My goal is to help you get everything that you need to get the way you need to get it, and then you got to do with what you got to do with it. Now, you'll remember, just so we, if somebody's picking up these tapes and, and just starting here, uh, just so you have a co context here, we started uh, with the first section in Genesis chapter 1, 1, verse 2. Then we moved into, stayed in Genesis in the first three chapters, and we dealt with the rebuilding of the heavens that we've talked about. Then the third chapter section that we moved into was Adam and Eve. Componently, we're building the Bible one section at a time. You learn each section and then put them back together. Then the fourth section was, was Noah's flood. And that, we, that was Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. We, uh, fifth section was Abraham, uh, and now we started the formulation of the nation of Israel. We talked about that. And then the sixth one section, would, when they went down into Egypt, and of course we know they're down there for 430 years, and uh, we talked about that. The seventh one was when they come out of Egypt, and that sets up the second aspect of Israel, and you want to get these five aspects of Israel down and thoroughly understand them the calling out of Israel. Remember I told you that uh, all of the Bible in the, in, the, in the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel, and in Genesis up to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where it all kind of comes to a head, um, you have these sections that you need to understand about Israel. The, um, the calling out would take us up to Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And then we have the eighth one was the establishment of Israel. That's when they go in over Jordan. Uh, that'll be Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel. And then, of course, we get to David and Solomon. And then this brings us to the ninth one, which was our downhill slide, the demise of the nation of Israel. And that'll be First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Then we went into the tap captivity of the nation of Israel, and this is what we talked about last time. We define for you the times of the Gentiles. We define for you the fullness of the Gentiles. Um, we define for you the dispensation of the fullness of times. And we talk at, at length about Israel going into captivity and, uh, and, and all that, that they're still into captivity today. And today, we come to the 11th section. And without a doubt, this is the premier section of your Bible. This is probably the most single important uh, aspect of the Word of God uh, in everything that we're going to deal with. Everything uh, moves toward this point, and then after this point, everything kind of comes back to this point. And this will be the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without a doubt, uh, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest event in history. 
it'll only be superseded by uh, the event that's coming up, and that'll be the second coming of Christ. I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, in the newspapers, um, they have different uh, headlines, you know, um, for the front page. And the largest, <coughs> the largest print or type on a newspaper that they can put in to, you know, breaking news or whatever across the front, they call it second coming type. Uh, and it is, in their minds, what they would use to announce the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the future event that's going to supersede all other events. But at this point in time, our time, the greatest point in history will be uh, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're going to run into a lot of people that um, fundamentally um, don't believe in the Bible. Uh, they don't believe in anything about God. Um, they don't want to... You know, they don't want to accept the fact that there is a Bible, that there is a God. Everybody gets their own ideas on it. And, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> most of those people, all of those people, are very shallow uh, when it comes to pretty much understanding anything. And <clears throat> you're going to find out that uh, the, you cannot separate the Bible and history. And that's why I'm blending the two together as we're coming through these 17. I'm not getting into it in great depth, but enough that you can see the consistency of it working together. And, uh, you know, the reason, there's five reasons that you know that the first coming of Christ took place. And when people want to discredit that, not believe that, uh, when they want to argue the fact that the Bible's not the Word of God, or you want to argue the fact that uh, Christ uh, is no different than anybody else, here are the five reasons by which you counter that that is unrefutable. And if you get these five things down and, uh, and learn them, uh, you'll, uh, you'll just use them constantly uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the deal. The, the most unique man that ever hit this planet was the Lord Jesus Christ. The world was never the same after he came here. And he was only here uh, as far as his public ministry for a little over three years. But in those three years, he changed the course of mankind. He changed the course of the world. And people who think that Christ is just like everybody else, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucianists, and all the religions are the same, uh, you know, maybe great educated men and women, but they're really stupid when it comes to uh, the, just the common things of the world that everybody else can see. And the first thing I want to tell you that you know uh, that everything about Christ is true uh, is the fact that the Bible says uh, that uh, there was a day declared. And that day was the first day of the week. And you'll find in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 2, uh, that that day was established. We as Gentiles are big on days. And we talk about 4th of July, that's a day. And the 4th of July is when we celebrate our independence. Nobody would question the fact that, that the 4th of July uh, isn't a, a legitimate thing, that we didn't get our independence in 1776. Uh, we have Memorial Day. And Memorial Day uh, is a day that has been set aside to uh, pay memorials to all the men and women that died uh, in all of the wars in our country. Nobody would dispute that. In other words, 
when a day is declared for what it is, the evidence of that day <coughs> will carry it through. The reason why most people don't know anything today about our independence and the War of Independence in 1776. They don't know who George Washington was. They don't know who Alexander Hamilton was. They don't know the Battle of Concord. They don't know Battle of York. They don't know any of that stuff. But they believe that, that we got our independence because the day was established, and that day that was established is July the 4th. People don't know anything about Memorial Day. They don't know anything about Vietnam. They don't know anything about Korea. They don't know anything about World War II, World War I. They don't know anything about those. But they'll, they'll take Memorial Day once a year, and they'll, they'll, they'll believe that everything somebody says because a day has been declared. Well, when Christ came, uh, he declared a day, and that day was the first day of the week. From that point on, all over the world, everybody accepted that day, which we know as Sunday, as the day that was declared. In Acts chapter 20, that's when they first met, first day of the week. In Mark chapter 16, they took up the offering on the first day of the week. When Christ came, he established the first day of the week, which is Sunday, uh, as the day for the church, his day. And of course, uh, that has been universal all over the world. There isn't anybody, whether they believe in God or not, <clears throat> does not understand that Sunday is a special day that you go to church. Whether you believe it or not, the whole world knows that there's been a day declared and that day was Sunday or the first day of the week. That day being declared took place at the first coming of Christ. Never before and anywhere in the Gentile world was Sunday other than the pagan religions that are sun god, never was it a day that, that Christianity or anybody uh, worshipped God. Before that, obviously, it was the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And that was given to the nation of Israel. That day was declared to them. When the New Testament church comes into effect based on the first coming of Christ, it's Sunday, and a day was declared. The same thing happens, the second thing you want to realize is that not only was there a day declared at the first coming of Christ, but a name was given. And that Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there's no name given under heaven, given among men. That is the name of Jesus. And from that point on, the way I know beyond any shadow of any doubt that when Christ came at the first coming of Christ, he changed the world and impacted the world and he alone stands against all the other religions and religious leaders is simple fact that a name was given. And that name was given, and Christians reverence that name. They hold that name special. They hold that name precious and dear. And, of course, the unshaved world has to take that name as a cuss word. They'll never take Buddha. They'll never take Muhammad. They'll never take Confucius. They'll never take anybody who are the main religions, if they want to add weight and authority to whatever they're saying, they will call, as the Bible clearly defines, on the greatest name given among men to add weight to their authority or what they want to say. That alone, that alone tells anybody who's got any ounce of common sense <clears throat> that there was something special about... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere in history, anywhere, any place you couldn't find a place, 
any time, anywhere, any place in history where everybody ever cursed and used another name outside of the Lord Jesus Christ or a variation of that. A name was given. And then the third thing that you know, and that is the fact that a book was written. There is no other book on this planet that can rival uh, the Word of God. The unsaved world hates it, and unfortunately, 99% of God's people hate it. But it stands, and it stands as the book that God has given us that is the final authority in everything that we do. And you can look down through history, and you can see the nations that reverence that book, how God blessed them. You can go down through history or look at your own life and see the men and the women who have loved that book and reverenced how God has blessed and taken care of them. Without a doubt, the book was given, and that book came into being uh, based on Christ's first coming of Christ. By 90 A.D., just 30-some years after, or 60-some years after Christ was here, uh, the Bible is complete. John writes the final books in 90 A.D. on the Isle of Patmos, and now the Bible is complete. And not only was a day declared, but a name was given, and then a book was written. Now, the fourth thing was the fact that a testimony was given. We think of a testimony as somebody who uh, is a testament to Christianity. And we all talk about, and we've all seen examples, and we all have our own selves, you know, lost our testimony, blown our testimony. And we know that, that uh, for us to the world, to believe in Christ, the real thing is not the verses that you quote, not the Bible that you carry, but the changed life that they see. And when people do not see the changed life, then you really don't have much of a testimony. You know, uh, we live, I realize, we live in a day and age today where Christianity <coughs> doesn't really think much, or Christians don't really think much about a testimony. They think they can shack up with some guy, they can do this, they can do that, they can live whatever they want to live, drink whatever they want to drink, do whatever they want to do, and they still have a testimony. Of course, that's, that's not true. Uh, you may think you do, but your own family laughs at you, the world laughs at you, and when your kid down the line follow in suit the same thing that you do, and you try to correct them, they're going to throw it right back in your face. You know why? Because you have no testimony. If you're going to portray the gospel to somebody, you better have the testimony to back it up. It's just that simple. Otherwise, keep your mouth shut. And, um, you know, and we think about how terrible it is to lose your testimony, but we don't ever think about the fact that Christ has a testimony. And, of course, the testimony of Christ, uh, you're told that over there in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, that Christ has a testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, you're told what that testimony is. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And basically what it's saying here is the fact that Christ's testimony would be worthless. He would be worthless. He would be just another tin horn god on the scrap heap of history uh, if there's anything that time that he blew his testimony. And his testimony is the spirit of prophecy. Deuteronomy chapter 18 is the great chapter on this, which simply tells us that, uh, that the way that you know God is the true God because everything He says comes to pass. That's the spirit of prophecy, that everything He prophesied will come to pass. There's over 500, 1,000 prophecies in the Old Testament. When Christ came the first time, 
he fulfilled 48 prophecies of the Old Testament. The mathematical probability against that is 10 to the 157th power. There aren't that many electrons in the universe. But yet every one of them came to pass. And the reason why you know that Christ is who he said he was and how he impacted the world at the first coming of Christ is through the spirit of prophecy. Everything that he said came true. All the other cults, the Mormons, Jehovah Witness, the Seventh-day Adventists, all of those groups, those leaders down through history all made prophecies that never came true. And of course, they were based on their Bible and their relationship with God. Throw them out the door as soon as it doesn't come through. And of course, the testimony of Christ was, was the spirit of prophecy. And then the last thing that you know, and this brings us to where we're at today, the first coming of Christ, the grandest uh, place in history was the Bible says that there was a, uh, a year was given. And uh, this is where the coming of Christ dates our history. It is the single greatest event. Now, just so you know, when we get into the millennium after Christ comes back, the single main event then will be the second coming of Christ. You find that in Zechariah chapter 14 and other places in the Bible. But right now, up to the second coming of Christ, the greatest single event in history that impacted the world, that changed the world, that all the world looks to one way or the other, will be, um, will be the first coming of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we have up to the last 20, 30 years, we've dated everything uh, before Christ. It was 606 B.C., and B.C. means before Christ. In other words, everything in Old Testament and in history, this wasn't Bible, this was in secular history. It was, it was the Romans took over in 200 B.C. That was the established format for cataloging time before Christ showed up, B.C., before Christ. And of course, he shows up at the first coming of Christ, and he dies, and then after that, they count all time uh, in the form of not B.C. anymore, but before Christ, but A.D., and many, many people have referred to that down through history as after death, and of course, that's not true. Uh, The A.D. is a Latin term that means in the year of our Lord. And by that, what I'm saying is this, and this is, the, this is the establishment. Notice, time was not built around Buddha. Time was not built around Confucius. Time was not built around Muhammad. Time, past and present, was built around the most grandest point in history, and that's the day the Lord Jesus Christ showed up. And all history before that is before Christ. All history after that is in the year of our Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean when a secular scientist evolutionist has to date time concerning Christ? What does it mean when it says to them in the year of our Lord, A.D.? It simply means this. Nobody knows the year he's coming back. We don't know that. So A.D. or Andonymous, which means in the year of our Lord, simply means that this could be the year that he comes. In other words, the whole world lost world, the whole world, every government, the whole world 
dates their time before Christ and then dates time after Christ that this may be the year he comes back. There isn't one other religious leader in the history of the world because the first coming of Christ was the event that changed the world. Now, I say that. In the last 20, 30 years, they've changed B.C. and and A.D. Uh, The world had gotten to the place where they could not stand that any longer. And uh, it was always interesting to me that, you know, everybody, everybody... Everybody always looks at the world and, and, and sees how the world goes and says, so, uh, so as the world goes, Christianity goes. And, and that's the thing that most people say, well, the world gets in a mess, so Christianity follows. No, it's the other way around. As Christianity goes, so the world goes. I mean, you see it in Europe. The whole uh, There was a time in Europe when then almost... 100% of the European population and the common man was have a saving knowledge of Christ. Not today. And what happened? The Word of God went, they went. And America, America was preserved by God because he stood on a book. When the book went, America went. And the world didn't take the Bible from us. Christians took the Bible from us. And so it isn't that as the world goes, Christianity goes. It's as Christianity goes, so goes the world. So you'll find in the last 30, 40, 50 years that Christianity dumps the Bible, therefore dumping God, and so you see the world following suit, and so they change B.C. and A.D. And today, uh, in professional circles, most common people still use the old B.C. and A.D., but uh, in the professional circus now, B.C. has been placed with B.C.E., which means before common era. They've taken Christ completely out of it. A.D. has been replaced with B.P., which is uh, before present. And in their terminology, anything before 1950. And of course, again, taking Christ completely out of it because of the fact that uh, Christianity has taken Christ completely out of it. So, you know, it, it's where it is. In all history, uh, uh, all history uh, will look toward the coming of Christ and all history then past that will look back. Now this has led, in Christianity, because they don't know anything about the Bible, this has led them to believe, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, how this has led the Christian world to believe that in the Old Testament everybody looked forward to the cross, and then in the New Testament everybody looks back to the cross. And of course, uh, that's true uh, in the sense that we do look back to the cross, but it's not true in the sense that... Uh, uh, people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, I want to give you some things today, and you're going to hear this tomorrow, but you're going to get it first. It just happens to be within the text of Proverbs, but um, I didn't plan it this way. But I, what I want to give you right now, I want you to listen to me very carefully, and I want you to get this down. This is absolutely vital in grasping and understanding the first coming of Christ and the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, when God wrote the Old Testament, now I know there's a lot of reasons for it. I get it. I understand that. Let's look at the bottom line. Let's don't look at the establishment, the calling out of Israel. Let's forget all that for a moment. 
Let's go down to the lowest common denominator. Let's stop, scrape everything off, and let's ask ourselves, why fundamentally? Why, in a fundamental way, why did God write the Old Testament? And the answer to that is that fundamentally, in its lowest common denominator and form, God wrote the Old Testament to mess up Gentiles. You see this in Romans chapter 1. You see, the Old Testament is a, theatric, uh, is a theocratic a military kingdom uh, called the kingdom of heaven. It's a literal, visible reign around a, of a nation around a visible city, Jerusalem. And the Gentiles can't get that. They can't see that God would build everything around a people that they disdain like the Jews. <clears throat> they look at their own kingdoms. That's why <clears throat> all down through history, <clears throat> all of the nations in the Old Testament <clears throat> were against the nation of Israel from the beginning, wanted to wipe them out. And that's why we have the same thing today. They've just, they're same people, they just amalgamated through different countries where down here they're called the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Habites. Now they're called the Iraqis, the Iranians, and the Jordanians. But they're the same group, <clears throat> the same people. They've just changed clothes and changed names and, and called their countries by different, by different names. <clears throat> but the whole world, Gentile world, could not get the fact that God established a literal, visible kingdom, a theocratic kingdom with God as king that was going to have a people unto him and only unto him that everybody else in the Gentile world had to come to. They couldn't get there. They couldn't get there because of the hardness of their heart. So what happens is they build their kingdoms, they build their countries, they have their kings, they have their queens, they have their dictators, they have their presidents, they have their monarchs, everybody, <clears throat> because of the fact that they stumble at the Old Testament. Now, this is why, you know, uh, when you go to seminary someplace or Bible college someplace, <clears throat> you'll never be taught the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Never. Even in the religious world, they won't acknowledge it. You have to get you someplace where they really believe the Bible to get the truth about that. And uh, they won't do it. They even stumble at it. God is great at putting out stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks are thrown in our way for us to stumble over when we reject the clear teachings of the Word of God. And so when that stumbling block hits our life, we stumble over it, but because we don't have the light of God's Word, we actually think that the stumbling that we're stumbling over is okay. And uh, we actually move on in life. Hey, I've seen God's people make some terrible mistakes in their life. They stumbled over all because they rejected the Word of God. They stumbled in their marriage. They stumbled in their relationships. They stumbled in everything in their life. They just made an absolute mess out of their life. And while they're doing it, they think they're just fine. Now, maybe 20, 30 years when their kids are a mess and their life's a mess and they've had three or four bad marriages and everything is upside down in their life and they're broke and they're busted and they're on a trash pile, maybe at that point they'll begin to grasp that they made some mistakes. But while they're going through it, they don't see the stumbling block. You know why? Because they rejected the clear teaching of the Word of God. And when you reject that, God's going to throw a stumbling block right in your path and you're going to break your neck. He does the same thing with nations. And when the Gentiles refused the Jew, 
when the Gentile, I mean, you don't go, you don't go hardly at all in, in the Old Testament before you find uh, Ishmael and Esau. And they're already starting to be against the Jew. And that only festers, and you see all the other nations that the devil used to keep them out of the land and to destroy them. And all of that is a, all of that is a, is a, is a time where they are absolutely uh, trying to shut them down. And, of course, it becomes a stumbling block. I've told you many, many times, there's two stumbling blocks in the Bible, two of them. And one of them will be the Old Testament nation of Israel, the other will be the New Testament church. You don't get the proper two defined for you, you're going to trip on something and break your neck. There's a, there's, you, you don't get the nation of Israel clearly as God laid it out and see them as the absolute way that God was going to reach the world in the Old Testament, you'll break your neck. If you don't see the true church of Jesus Christ, the true church. And it gets a little more complicated in the New Testament. Actually, in the Old Testament, it's pretty easy because you only got one. You got the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, my goodness, it starts out with two, then pretty quick you got five, then pretty quick you got a hundred. It starts out with just Roman Catholicism and the true church, and then you get the Lutheran, then you get the, then you get the Russian Orthodox, then you get the Greek Orthodox, then you get the Presbyterian, then you get the Methodist, then you get the this, then you get that, then you get the little splinter groups like the, the Amish, and you get the, you know, all those crowds, and then you get a little bit farther down the line, you get the, you get the Jehovah Witnesses, you get the Mormons, you get all that crowd. It gets real confusing, real confusing. And if a person doesn't find the true program of God in the Old Testament and the true program of God in the New Testament, and these are called landmarks in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22 and 23. There's a landmark in the Old Testament. There's a landmark in the New Testament. You don't find those landmarks, you'll stumble. And along with both of those go some things that are absolutely undeniable and there's nothing to really debate about them or talk about them. And of course, in the New Testament is the Word of God. <clears throat> Most people have a problem with the King James Bible because they have a complete ignorance of history. And uh, they pretend like they know something today. They pretend like they got a little knowledge today when actually they're, they're just about as stupid as you could ever hope to be because of the fact that they don't have a depth to them. Uh, they look at the King James Bible and they reject it based on the scholarship of the, of a, that's around them and the books that they've read. What kind of, what kind of, what kind of facts is that? <clears throat> You're reading books about guys who already had an ax to grind against the Word of God. Now, you've got to go back in history and you've got to find the landmark you find the landmark, and then you work from there. Don't find the landmark. Find what that landmark held true, what they did, what they didn't do. And, of course, that's the key. And so in the Old Testament, he writes the Old Testament to mess up a Gentile. And this is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is the great chapter of the New Testament that shows you the mess that the Gentiles are in and why. Because they take the things of God and make them like things to corruptible man. And that's what Gentiles do. All right, then he wrote the New Testament. He wrote the New Testament in its basic fundamental format, foundation-wise. He wrote the New Testament to mess up the Jew. You see, the New Testament is a spiritual kingdom that the Jew could never get to. It's a grace situation that a Jew can't get. So Christ for him in the New Testament became a stumbling block. And the church today for a Jew is a stumbling block. So when you look at 
Christ's coming, the first coming of Christ. You're seeing a time where everything is focused on Christ's coming, uh, and he's fulfilling the Old Testament, and then he's putting in a New Testament, which is going to take place at his death, and then we move on from there. And the key to it is to finding the two landmarks that will define it for you. When you don't see those landmarks, then the Old Testament for a Gentile is going to be a stumbling block because he's not going to see the Jew as God's chosen people. The New Testament is going to be a stumbling block for the Jew because he rejects Christ and he can't see Christ or accept Christ, so he can't get anything out of the New Testament. And this goes back to, you know, this goes back to uh, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is basically the object of their obedience. And uh, the Old Testament object of their obedience varied according to what God told them to do. Noah's object of obedience was a boat. Abraham's object of obedience was the stars like heaven. Down through the Bible, God gives them different things that they are to be obedient to. In the New Testament, the object of obedience is fixed. It doesn't vary. In the Old Testament, it did. This is one of the things that they just cannot get. The biggest problem people have with this is they think that when you start talking like this, that when you get into the New Testament, we have grace and we have faith. And then when you start talking about how God uh, had them their act of obedience on something other than Christ, uh, the law or something they had to do, like build a boat, then they, they, they're so shallow when it comes to the Bible that they think then now, well, you're talking about uh, salvation for works. You know, and I've heard guys teach, and it, I mean, fundamentally, it's true, but you got to be careful how you say it. In the New Testament, they'll say, well, you're saved by grace, faith, plus nothing. That's true. You're saying that in the Old Testament, they're saved by works. That's not necessarily true. Truth of the matter is, listen very carefully. Truth of the matter is, here's the bottom line. And if you, if you ever get this, it'll open up a lot of things for you. Here's the bottom line. Faith and grace are in operation in the Old Testament. They're in operation in the New Testament. You can't get saved without grace. You can't get saved without exercising faith in something. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is exercising your faith in what? Now, here's the bottom line. Let me put, a, let me put an end to this thing about salvation for works. And I know today we have our Methodists, we have our liberals, we have our Catholics, we have all of those groups who actually believe that you can work your way to heaven and we know that you cannot. We get that. But listen, listen, listen very carefully. Salvation, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, fundamentally, salvation is by works. You cannot get around that. In the Old Testament, they had to believe what God told them about whatever given particular situation, but then they had to do it. Noah could have believed God all day long if he wouldn't have built a boat, his own hands and labor, and that boat is a type of Christ. 
That boat was his salvation. The Bible says that Noah was saved by water. What does that mean? The water made the boat necessary to save him. That boat was his salvation. But he built it. He built it. When in the Old Testament, they had to build a city. That city was Jerusalem. The Bible says that Abraham looked for a city uh, whose builder and maker was God. He's looking for the literal, visible city. You know, when you go over there in, uh, in the Old Testament, when they're under the law, they had, when they broke the law, they had to physically do something. They had to bring a sacrifice. They had to kill an animal. They had to physically do some kind of work to get their sins not paid for, but covered. When God took Abraham out there and showed him the stars of heaven, Abraham said he believed God, and the Bible says, I'll count that to you for your righteousness. It wasn't a, it wasn't a spiritual thing. That was, he says, your seed. He wasn't talking about all your born-again children. He was talking about a literal seed of the nation of Israel that Abraham was going to put forth out of his loins. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, off we go. Salvation in the Old Testament, though grace and faith was there, was by works. When Christ came at the first coming of Christ, he fulfilled the law. Grace and faith are still in effect, but salvation is still by works. The difference is, you and I don't have to do the work. Christ did the work. But it's works. Salvation, somebody always has to do the work for salvation. In the Old Testament, it was the people. In the New Testament, it was Christ. And you and I don't have to do anything to be saved. We rest in His finished work. What did He say on the cross? It is finished. What? His life? What? What was finished? The work was finished. He said, I've come to do the work of my Father. What work was that? Did He get a job in a carpentry shop? Did He work at the steel mill? What work? Was He drive through at McDonald's? What work? the work for your salvation. But you see, people are so inept when it comes to the Bible, they can't see the Bible on that level of depth. So they get panicky with words. They get panicky when you use certain terms because they don't know how those terms are used in the Bible. All they've ever heard is how they're used, you know, in the realm of Christianity. Somebody says, if, if I would get up into most churches and say salvation in the New Testament is by works, they'd throw me out. But it is. It just isn't your works. It's Christ's works. So the idea that I want you to understand is that in the Old Testament, there's grace and faith. In the New Testament, there's grace and faith. The difference between the two was the object that they had to be obedient to. In the Old Testament, it varied. In the New Testament, it's fixed. But it all comes down, somebody has to do the work. Salvation cannot be salvation without a work involved. God just didn't come down and pass out salvation like we do hot dogs on the weekend. And yet, that's a great analogy because we may give the hot dogs out freely. God gives out salvation freely. But if you go back to a restart, you'll find that somebody there is doing the work. They're cooking them. That's exactly what God did. He did the work. You get it passed out to you free. But somebody had to do the work. And so, once you understand that, you begin to see the absolute importance and the impact. 
of the first coming of Christ. It changed the world. It, it, it's where, when we talk about learning your Bible and understanding your Bible, it's where we really start if we're going to understand it. Now, we didn't start there because I'm trying to lay out the whole thing. But after you learn your Bible, you will come to the place in your mind that wherever somebody asks you a question, you will split that question or rightly divide that question on one side of the cross or the other. That's what I'm saying. When we go into the world, it's the same thing, B.C. or A.D. Same thing. Uh, when you think of history, you think is it before Christ or after Christ. Same thing. And that's why that, this period of time is the premier thing of, of the 17 we're going to look at, other than the second coming, which hasn't happened yet. And as I said, when the second coming comes, then this one will pass away and everything will be focused on the second coming of Christ. But this is what you have here. This is why it's so important. You know, this is why it, uh, it, uh, uh, today most people cannot get this. They can't grasp it. And, you know, the other thing that you, you, uh, you want to be able to see is the fact that, uh, uh, going back to that stumbling block, um, come over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And like I said, you're going to hear all this again tomorrow, but you'll get it first. It just so happens that it, that it all came down at the same time. Maybe it's good that you get a double hit on it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Now here's fundamentally why the Jews rejected Christ. And, you know, again, the standard teaching is in all of Christianity today, I don't care where you go, the standard teaching is today that the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross, we look back to the cross. It, it's such an easy answer, but it's so wrong. Uh, now, here's the reason why the Jews, and to that I always ask, well, if that's true, then how come they all, they crucified him? If everybody was looking for him, why did they not make him king? And, of course, the answer is, this is like Genesis 6, you know, well, those sons of God were born-again people, really? Well, why didn't they get on the ark? Now, here's the real reason why the Jews rejected Christ. And you want to get this in your Bible if you don't have it. It's over here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, look at verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, a couple of things I want you to mark here just so you have them. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 11, uh, Christ was in, uh, a spirit of Christ was in them. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would go in somebody, but he wouldn't dwell there. He would come and he would leave. So he comes into you, you're the temple. He lives there. So I don't want you to get confused on the fact where somebody says, well, you said the Holy Spirit of God isn't in people in the Old Testament. No, that's not what I said. He comes in people in the Old Testament. He just doesn't stay there. He can come and he can leave. In the New Testament, he can't. That's one of the fundamental differences. Then the second thing I want you to see 
let's read it here, the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it. You see, the Holy Spirit of God here is referred to as an it. And that's Bible doctrine personified because in the Old Testament you'll never find the Holy Spirit of God listed as a person because He's seven manifestations of a spirit. He's not a person. He's not a complete person inside you to the New Testament. So the proper thing would be it, not Him. Because in the Old Testament, when He was testifying, He wasn't testifying as a person. He was testifying as an it. Because in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, He's manifested in seven spirits. These are little things you want to get into your Bible. And I point them out to you as we go through. And in time, after 50, 60 years, you'll get them all down. Now here's the two things that I want you to see. That the Holy Spirit of God testified to the, through the prophets to that they couldn't get. And when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament put the first coming and the second coming of Christ right together in the same passages. There's a number of places that show them together. And they're separated by punctuation. And of course, uh, the Jew was looking for a king. He was looking for the glory. But he couldn't understand the sufferings. See? He couldn't get the first coming he was looking for the second coming. And in the Old Testament, he kept seeing these things together where he was going to suffer, but then he was going to be glorified as king, and he couldn't understand it. He couldn't get it. And that's the stumbling block that God put before them. The reason why he could not get it is because of the hardness of their heart and the other gods that they were following. Now, I'm just going to say this. In the Old Testament, they followed other gods, God's people. They followed other gods. Listen to me. In the Old Testament, God's people followed other gods, and when they did that, God shut the door of revelation to them that they got a stumbling block on this and couldn't get it. In the New Testament, Christians don't follow after other gods. They follow after other Bibles. Same thing. See how subtle the devil did that? He knows that he couldn't get First Baptist to Raytown to offer the kids in the fire molik in the parking lot. Nobody would do it. He knows they couldn't get him to offer him up the human sacrifices out at, uh, you know, uh, uh, Abundant Strife or wherever you're out there. They, 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 they wouldn't do it. He, he knew it wouldn't work. He knew that we were going to get so sophisticated that we would never, never, never follow other gods as God's people like they did in the Old Testament and then take our children, burn them in the fire of Molech, have a ceremony out in the parking lot where we're going we're gonna to offer all your firstborn to, to God uh, and everybody just line up to do it. He knew that they couldn't do that. He, times were going to change. Society was going to become more civilized. Laws and rules and laws were going to come in. So he had to shift it from the other gods in the Old Testament that they actually did that to, to the new Bibles. So he got God's people not to follow the other gods, but follow the other Bibles. And in a spiritual sense, get me now, in a spiritual sense, they still offer their kids up to the fire of Molech and to the world. They just don't kill them physically. They just kill them spiritually. And that's why every generation that gets farther from the Bible gets worse. Every one of them. Every one of them. 
Every generation that gets farther from the Bible, Christian generation, gets worse. Uh, you take your parents that go to any church that use an ASV or any other Bible, uh, their kids will have some issues, but as it gets farther away, those kids will have some issues. And uh, it's one of those things where I, I knew a, I knew a, I, I knew a, I know of, not knew, I know of a, a man, and I wouldn't tell you his name because I don't want to uh, bring any reproach to him in any way, shape, or form, but it's a true story. I know a guy who was probably one of the best preachers, one of the best guys uh, that believed the King James Bible up one side and down the other that you ever met in your life. He probably impacted more young men and more people with the Word of God than, and, than anybody that I've ever met in my life. And yet I watched him, uh, and I don't totally fully understand this, yet I watched his, his kids that come up there that grew up in his ministry and grew up with that. I watched the kids, now that he's passed away and gone, I watched the kids completely reject the Word of God. They don't even believe what he taught anymore. The one daughter is all messed up with her husband in, in a cult. Uh, the boy is messed up in the world, and he doesn't do anything with anything. They deny, uh, they deny anything that was any substance of what their dad taught. They all had kids. Those kids now are grown, and their kids are married. And those kids now are coming to the place where um, that uh, one of them is, a, is, a, is a, a liberal preacher that teaches baptism regeneration. The other kids married uh, girls that uh, are not even saved. And then the generation after, it'll only be three generations, maybe four at the most, probably three, where nobody ever will even remember what the real guy stood for. He'll be gone. You know why? Because once you reject the book, once you reject the book, every generation that follows, the last generation gets first and gets farther from the truth. Here's a guy that was the greatest, probably single guy that I know of. Uh, preaching the Bible and laying it out, and by the time you get the three generations, his kids are all unsaved. Their grand great grandkids are all unsaved, have no knowledge of God, have no knowledge of the Bible, have married unsaved people, and now have started a path that all their kids are going to die and go to hell. Just three generations later, from the guy who believed the book, who stood on the book, who changed so many people's lives. See where I'm going with this? You better get that. You wonder why your kids and your family have the problems that they have. I'm telling you, because you're into that flight pattern that the generations are going to, unless something changes, something breaks that pattern, <clears throat> you're in the same boat. And you can whine and cry about it all you want. The other the whole bottom line is you, you filed the flight plan and you left the book and you went after your own way. I'm going to talk tomorrow about he that wandereth out of the way of understanding. <clears throat> and boy, I'll tell you, <clears throat> you see it. And it's a thing where I've seen it and scratched my head all my life. <clears throat> I've seen preachers that came out of the, you talk about these great preachers that we talked about, like at the Canton Baptist Temple, the Akron Baptist Temple, and all that. All their kids are screwed up. Every one of them. And every one of those churches, they started to depart from the Bible <clears throat> while I was still in Canton. And when I left, not because of me, but when I left, it just continued to go. And the one guy who was probably the, the, the greatest soul winner I ever saw in my life, loved people like nobody ever saw in my life. He didn't know a lot about the Bible, but he sure loved people, and he could build a church based on his love for others 
You've got one boy who now is an Episcopalian priest. You've got a girl who doesn't go to church anywhere. You've got another boy who's been in and out of churches and, and, uh, and, and screwed up more churches than, than you could ever think of. And uh, their kids and their family coming down the line. Imagine a guy who stood in a pulpit, preached the Word of God, had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to Christ in his 50 years in ministry. Produce a boy now who teaches you to be baptized for salvation. How does that happen? Fundamentally, he never did believe the book. He never did. He never, you either won't believe it and you'll mess it up or you'll have it and believe it but not follow it and mess it up. It's going to go one way or the other. When it comes to Christianity, we don't have a lot of wiggle room. But <clears throat> we like to wiggle. <clears throat> so you see in 1 Peter, <clears throat> they couldn't get the difference between it. They couldn't see it. And it was because of the hardness of their heart. Now I'll show you one. Come over to show you. There's a bunch of them, but I'll just show you one here. Come over to Genesis chapter 3. This is the first one in the Bible. You may already have this one marked, but there's a bunch of them. This is what he did. <clears throat> and you have to, you see, they couldn't figure it out. I can figure it out because I believe the book. I can figure them all out because I believe the book. But when you don't believe the book, or you, you wander away from God, then you get into trouble. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. This is, the, this is God talking to uh, the devil and the woman. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now, for those of you who didn't believe the devil had a seed, there it is. Now look at this, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You know what you got there? It shall bruise thy head is the second coming of Christ, and thou shalt bruise his heel the first coming of Christ. You got them right there together, except they're reversed. The bruising of the head is when Satan, Leviathan, in Isaiah chapter 27, gets his head busted in the second coming of Christ. The heel is when Christ gets crucified. There's this first coming and a second coming in the same verse, but they're reversed. And a Jew couldn't get it. I got it. How did I get it and they miss it? They're scribes and Pharisees. They've been through the Bible 100,000 more times than I ever thought about it. How did they get it? Not get it. I got it. And I, I've never been anywhere. How come I got it? Because I believe it. See? And when you believe the book, God opens up your understanding. When you don't believe it, you stumble at what God says. Then God shuts the door of revelation and you get nothing out of it. And then you're left to your own devices. Then you've got to make up stuff. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel did. And that's exactly what churches do today. <clears throat> it all goes back to the first coming of Christ. He changed the world when he came the first time. He literally changed everything about planet Earth. It was never the same again. And of course, 
It's undeniable. Men don't want to believe it, because, but they stumble at it. So they spend all of their lives coming up with philosophy, coming up with tradition, coming up with evolution, coming up with science, coming up with this, coming up with that. Everything that man does, listen to me, I'm telling you, this is a key point in history because everything a man does today, he does to get around to deny that this day ever changed the world. God's people do the same thing. You know why you work all the time and you say you're too busy to serve God or do anything for God? Because you want to get around that day. You know why somebody goes off to college someplace and learns evolution and learns this and learns psychology or becomes this, becomes that? So we can get around that day. You know why some young kid goes to Calvary Bible College or Midwest Set Seminary or goes to those places wherever you want to go, uh, you know, uh, Pillsbury, uh, Howes Anderson, Springfield, wherever you want to go. You know why they go there? So they can get around that thing ever happened. They just want to come to the point in their life where they, they have their own gods. Israel always had it. The last thing Joshua said to them before he died, uh, he told them, look, God is not going to allow you to serve him and keep your gods. You've got to give them up. They kept saying, we'll serve him. We'll serve him. He would never say, I'm going to give up the gods. They just get, oh, yeah, but we'll serve him. They would never, never admit what their real problem was. And as long as Israel will not admit what the real problem was, they won't get anything out of the Bible. And as long as God's people today won't admit what the real problem is, they won't get anything out of the Bible. All goes back to the first coming of Christ. The greatest single period of time in the history of the world that set in context the two landmarks. It began to, it began to put together the... the the uh, first coming of Christ, and it began to put together what God was going to do with Israel. There's two main things that come out of the first coming of Christ. Obviously, the first thing was that God was coming to the nation of Israel as He promised. I don't understand all what I'm about to say. I don't, it didn't happen, so I don't know how to put it all. I can speculate about it, but that only leads to more speculation. The nation of Israel had three chances to get Christ in the kingdom. They rejected all three. God's, and I'm going to say it this way, this may not be exactly how it was, but it's, it's good for us to put it into this kind of thinking. Plan A that God had was to come to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. The first chance they had was John the Baptist. What did he preach? He preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's baptizing them down in the river Jordan. That's right where they crossed over. When Christ was baptized by John, he was baptized on the exact same spot that Joshua crossed over, and those 12 stones that they put under the water were still there someplace. He was identifying with them, Israel, that he had come down through the water and was going to be their Messiah. And, of course, they rejected John the Baptist, and they killed him. The second one was Christ himself. And when Christ came to the nation of Israel, he presented himself to be the Son of God. Many of the common people believed him. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders did not. And you know what happened with the second. They got killed. 
on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Everybody looks at that and says, boy, that was really nice of him to do that. He had a reason behind what he was doing. He wanted Israel to accept him as their Messiah. So based on that crying out, God gave him one more chance. That's why when we get into the book of Acts, which is a tremendous book, which I will bring you through uh, when we get into the later stages of this, we're going to come through Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews in great detail. But in the book of, in the book of Acts, he kind of uh, puts a little parenthesis in the first seven chapters before he lets anything start. He's going to fulfill that last request of his son. So he has Peter preach some messages, and then he has Stephen preach the messages, one message. And of course, this is their final, this is their final um, opportunity in, in before the tribulation. And you know what happens. They, they kill Stephen, and they, they stone him to death, and it, it's over. At that point in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, it's a great turning point. When I bring you through Acts, I'm going to show you the great two turning points in the book of Acts. Everything in the book is built around those two points. At that point, Acts chapter 7, everything changes. Not one more miracle is done in Jerusalem. God's finished in Jerusalem. He's done with the Jews now, temporarily. And now he's turning his attention to the, to the Gentiles. God's plan B was, if the Jew rejects, then I'm going to usher in the church age. And so by the time Acts chapter 7, you'll find at the end of there that when Stephen's preaching and they kill him, Jesus Christ is standing. He's standing because if they would have accepted him, he'd have come back. I don't know what that would have done to the church age. I don't know what that, how all that would have worked, but that, that, that's what would have happened. It didn't happen, so I can't really speak to it with any kind of authority. All I know is that he was ready to come back. They rejected immediately. I mean the next chapter, something unheard of happens. A revival breaks out in Samaria half Jew, half Gentile. They, Matthew 10, they were told not to even go to the Sumerians. Now revival's breaking out. Then you got an old black Gentile over here in the desert. He gets a personalized visit from an evangelist. Then in chapter 9, the Paul gets saved, the apostle to the Gentiles, and off we go. God had two plans at the first coming of Christ. Plan A was to give himself to Israel, they accept him, and he become their king. And then all of the prophecies would have been fulfilled. They rejected that. So Romans chapter 16, turn over to Romans chapter 16. Plan B goes into effect, but nobody knew plan B. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Now you see that thing? That's the gospel of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we talked about Thursday night. <coughs> Paul calls it his gospel. You know why? Because it was the gospel that was given to him. It wasn't his exclusively, but it was his uh, he's the first one to get it, got it revealed to him, then he took it to everybody else. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. The mystery there is the body of Christ, the church, which was kept secret since the world began. Now see that thing? That was God's plan B, but nobody knew it. He never revealed it to anybody. There's things that God has in His mind that there's not one place in the Old Testament where you can directly find any reference to the church. Now, I can go back and find it in type, but I can only find it in type because the church came into effect. If it wouldn't into effect, I would never have seen it. You wouldn't see it. That's the majesty of the Bible, how it blends itself, how it camouflages itself, how it hides itself. And the only way it reveals itself is through the Spirit of God and your attitude of heart toward it. Otherwise, you walk right over it and can't see it. You'll walk right up onto one of the greatest truths in the Bible. You'll never see a thing. You know why? God hides them from you. Because the key to the Bible is not your intelligence. The key to your Bible is your attitude about it. And he's saying here that the revelation of the mystery of the church was kept secret to the foundation of the world from the beginning. Look at verse 26. But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. What he's saying there is that now everybody can go back and see the scriptures and understand how God had a plan for the nation of Israel. And God, this would be Romans 9, and Romans 11. God had a plan for the nation of Israel. They were the original olive branches. But they didn't do what was right, so the olive branches, the original ones, got torn off, and God grafted in the wild olive branch, which is the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. And now it's going to all nations. And of course, this was the second aspect of the, <clears throat> of the first coming of Christ. These are things you need to know. These are things you need to take the next month and think about, talk about, ask questions about if you don't get it, Really get this one down, because this one is the key to everything. It takes you back everything we've come through. Now the whole landmark idea is, is there. It also sets you up for what's going to follow in the New Testament. And now we see that God's turning attention to the Gentiles. And once you understand the two landmarks in the Bible, in Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 23, you see one of those landmarks is the nation of Israel, that would be 22, and the other one is the church, that would be 23. And when you understand that and see that, then you begin to put everything together. You always want to remember that in the Old Testament, God is doing what He's doing to reach the world through a nation, a literal, visible nation, the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, He's doing it through a spiritual body that is His body, that replaced Him, the church. And the spiritual kingdom is the kingdom of God. You see, once a person, which 99.999% of all of them, once they teach that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same, I know it doesn't sound like much. You're done. You're done with the Bible. When it comes to spirituality and the Bible and learning it, you might as well go get a pistol and blow your brains out. You ain't going to get anything. Everything in the Bible hangs on those two concepts. And yet, I think they're the two simplest concepts anywhere, anywhere in all of the Bible. And yet, they are the two concepts that nobody understands today. They don't get it. And therefore, once you don't get that, it's done. There, there are a couple of things about the Bible that if you don't just simply get those two couple of things, 
You ain't going anywhere. And that's one of them. That's one of them. You don't get the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, you ain't going anywhere. Because everything in the Bible will come down on that side. That is your first great rightly dividing the word of truth. Understanding how it works. Now, last week we talked about the captivity. And we talked about what all the devil was doing. Let's come back and revisit that for a moment and put that even into a more clear context. When the nation of Israel <coughs> went down into Egypt, they're down there 430 years. That date, that time is chartered from the time that God talked to Abraham. There's another place in the Bible that says it's 400 years. It was total 430. You add the time that he told Abraham. God knew what he was going to do by bringing the people into the land. What the devil did in that 400 years is he saturated the land that God was going to give them with his nations. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 that there were giants in the land in those days and then a little add-on postscript and also after that. That also after that is a reference to uh, while they're down in Egypt. For 400 years, the devil is fortifying building with nations, a race of giants again, like Genesis 6, that is going to <clears throat> try to keep the nation of Israel out of the land. And of course, um, when they go out and they go over there, and I've told you this before, honestly, from uh, the journey there, it's like a two-week journey, and yet when they go over there and the spies go over and they see the giants, it strikes fear and terror in their heart. And so they have to wander for 40 more years before they can finally go over. And the devil's plan was to stop them from getting into the land. So that 400 years, he did everything he could to fortify that land that they couldn't get in there. And uh, they got the victory over it. Of course, they went in with Joshua and they, they cleaned house. And, but it took all the way up to David. David is the king who kills the last of the enemies. They fought those. They, that the devil made such an impact in there <clears throat> that it took from Joshua all the way up to David to finally wipe out the last of those enemies. When Solomon comes to the throne in 1000 B.C., they're all, they're all gone. David fights the last of them. Man, that, they were ingrained in that, in that land. They were in holdouts that they had to be routed out. And, they, you know, David, they even had Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem doesn't become the city. Uh, we always think about Jerusalem being the city. It doesn't become the city till David takes it. They didn't have it in Joshua's time. The judges didn't have it. The Philistines had it. The enemy had it. The devil had it. It wasn't until 2 Kings when David goes in there and he go up through that water system and they, they take that city. I mean, you've got to put it all into perspective. The devil did everything he could in those 400 years to stop them from coming over. All right, we learn from history. So now when 606 B.C. takes place and they go into captivity, we have another 400 years. Except this 400 years is going to bring us up to the first coming of Christ. 
the devil's plan was very predictable at this point because we've learned from history. The devil did the exact same thing. Did a little differently, but he did the exact same thing. He knew the giants wouldn't work anymore. He knew that the sons of God coming down and building a fortification of giants over there wasn't going to work. But he didn't need them. By the time all this began to play out, Rome had come into power. And so the devil used his nation, Rome, to basically take over all of the known world. Not the whole of the world, but the known world. And by, by the time that Christ shows up, Rome's empire is everywhere. She owns, she's got providence, and she certainly has Jerusalem. She's everywhere. She literally runs the whole world as we know the known world. She isn't in South America or North America and those places, but in Europe where, where the world was that time, she's running it. And she's now been running it for about 200, 300 years. And the devil used that time to infiltrate, to do everything that he could do to stand off the first coming of Christ. He took the Jewish religion who had been scattered everywhere and he added to them the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Two political religious organizations that had nothing to do with the Bible. And he did the same thing a little bit later on with Bible scholars. The scribes, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are nothing more than the forerunners of the modern-day Bible scholars today. They both do the same thing. They hate Christ and take the Bible from you. So he built all of that. Alexandria, Egypt, had now been established as the great intellectual seat of the world. Men are already going to work on destroying the Old Testament. He had the Greeks in power before the Romans. They set forth three of the four of the great philosophers that set the tone for learning through the Greeks' wisdom. That all in place to stop the wisdom of the Word of God. Every one of those guys had the writings of Solomon. Every one of those guys had the Old Testament. They knew what it was, and they destroyed it. All the other books of the Bible, the Apocrypha books, and all that is written during this time. The Septuagint is supposedly written during this time, the Greek Old Testament that Christ was supposed to use, which he never did. The devil counterfeited everything he could to stave off and to stop the impact of the first coming of Christ. He took the Bible from them. He took their religion from them. He took and scattered them throughout the world. He decimated them. Many of them had lost their own language. They didn't speak Hebrew anymore. So when Christ does show up, they have to speak in tongues. He just literally destroyed everything about the people of God in the world. He made sure that when Christ showed up, that the whole world for the next 2,000 years would have enough ammunition to fight it. And he did. And when Christ shows up, he's not just facing the the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. He's facing a world onslaught from stretches from Alexandria, Egypt, over to Babylon, the Ur of Chaldees, and every place in the known world that has, been, has written books, has publicized them, who has corrupted the Old Testament, who's come up now with corrupt teachings about everything and God, who are following philosophy and tradition and the great philosophers of the Greeks, has impacted the world to such a degree all to nullify what Christ did. And yet it didn't stop it. Christ still accomplished what he wanted to do. But what it did was, <clears throat> it gave the alternative to confuse God's people. 
And what happened was that when Christ shows up at the first coming of Christ, he's, he dies in 33 A.D., 50 years later, the two lines of Bibles begin to start. By the time John finishes off the, on the Isle of Patmos, the New Testament, there's already a corrupt New Testament on its way. The devil counterfeited everything that Christ did. I've told you many, 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 many times that the key to understanding history is just one simple little concept. You put all history into this concept and you can remember it, it's, it's pretty easy. And that is the fact that all history is God moving to accomplish his plan and then the devil moving in opposition to stop that plan. All history just breaks down into that little simple format. And if you can follow that, hold on to that, and look at that and see that, it's true in your life and in my life. God has a plan for you that he wants to accomplish, and then the devil puts in everything else that you think is more important. It's the same thing. He counters everything that God does in your life. Some of you don't pay attention to you. Some of you fall over it like it's a piece of salami and you haven't eaten for three weeks. I mean, you just buy into it. You know, he just, he, he'll, it's the fact that he will, he will tempt us with everything that we really want when we really don't want the Bible. You see, it's harder for somebody to tempt you something when you have what you really want, that nothing can take the place of that. So it's hard to be tempted with something else because you know there's nothing better. But when you don't love the book with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you don't really convince that it's the best thing in the world, it's easy to get led away because the other things held in front of your nose will tempt you and pull you out. Now, I'm not saying you can't love the book and, and, be, and can't get tempted. Certainly you can. But it's not harder to pull you off of something that you know there's nothing better than it is when you don't know it's nothing better or you don't believe there's nothing better. You just like it, come to church, yeah, I believe the Bible, yeah, I, I go to church. But boy, you're just keep going the other way. Well, that's what he did with the whole world. He gave them something what they thought was better. The devil will always, I don't care how saved you are, how right you are with God, how close you are to God, know this. The devil will always appeal to your old sin nature. He always will. And I want to tell you something. This is why I talk about the people you should hang out with and not hang out with. The negativity of people around you. Because it's a simple fact, and it's true in this, it's true in your own life, and it's true in everything in Christianity, and it's true with the first coming of Christ. Negativity always wins. It always does. When you take your light switch, go home, just a simple experience. You take your light switch. As long as you keep the positive and the negative separated, you got light. The moment you pull those two wires off and you take the negative and the positive and touch those two, the lights go out. You blow it. Negative, any negativity in your life, whether it be people, places, things that you do, any negativity, write it down, put it on your forehead backwards so you can see it in the mirror. It's the truth of life and the truth of the Bible. Negativity will cancel out your positivity every time you associate with it. You don't believe that? Go home and do the little light switch test. Just pull out your socket. No big deal. Take the top wire on the bottom. Be the black one. That's the that's the that's the that's the hot one. Uh, the green one will be, or the white one will be the the neutral, and uh, and uh, you know, and a negative. And you just take those two and look at them. 
Put them back in, lights are on, pull them out, lights are off. Put them back in, lights are on. Do it four or five times, have fun with it. Mm, lights on, lights off, lights on, lights on. <laughs> now you got your little switch out there. All the other lights are on, but this one's de- dead now. You got positive and negative, positive and negative. Oh, my house is so bright and lighty. Oh, my life is so bright and lighty. Oh, I got love, joy, 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 down in my heart. <laughs> Gone. All the lights, all the power. You see, it wouldn't be so bad if just all your lights went out, but when your lights go out, your power goes out. Now, when you put negativity in your life, no matter where it is, not only does the light go out, but you lose the power. Just the little things of life. And it's just the way it goes. First coming of Christ. That's all we're going to do today, because I want you to get this down. First coming of Christ is vital. Everything before it is going to run up to it. Everything after it is going to run back to it. It is the fixed point in history that changed the world. Nothing impacted the world on a worldwide scale more than the day Christ showed up. Those five things I gave you are proof positive that Christ was who he said he was. I got a hymnal over there. We could go to the Christian bookstore and probably buy four or five more hymnals. Our hymnals got 500 songs in about one man. You could probably go and get five more hymnals that got 500, 600 songs about one man. You couldn't find one song book about Buddha. You couldn't find one song book anywhere about Muhammad. You couldn't find one song book about anywhere about Confucius or all the great religious leaders down through history. You know why? Because they were nothing to sing about. You know why we sing about him? Because he gave your life something to sing about. I got a new song in my heart, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. What do you get with them? You get a book called the Koran that says you have wisdom if you drink camel pee. Oh, I'll get me one of those books. Yeah, that's what it says. You want wisdom? Drink camel urine. Put three or four Splenda in it and it tastes fine. That's what you get. You get women who want to go to school and get educated, they cut your nose off. That's what you get. They get women, if you wear a hood and have to have a little mask with a little veil that they can't even see your eyes, you've got to be dead to hell. And if you show any part of your body, even your finger or your leg and out, they'll, they'll, that's what you get. Why would you want to sing about that? I got the joy, 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 joy. My nose got off today. It just, <laughs> there's only one book that will give you the joy in your heart about one man. If that isn't proof positive that there's something special about him when all every other religion in the world, you couldn't find one book with one song in it. Because there's no joy in it. Travail, heartache, all of the things that, uh, uh, that uh, take away from your life, but nothing that makes your life count or worth anything. 